everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. We have a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right back into the story of Eileen Wernos. And again, this is part two of a three-part series, so if you haven't heard the first one, go check it out right now. We've received a lot of comments from you guys about part one and how it made you feel. We told you from the start, her childhood was definitely one of the worst that we have ever covered. And we maintain our stance that no one should ever have to go through the things that Eileen went through, especially as a child. However, it does not in any way justify what she did. We want to very quickly sum up some of the things we talked about last week before we pick up where we left off. Eileen was born to very young parents. Her mother divorced her father a few months before she gave birth to her at only 14 years old. Her father took his own life while serving a sentence for the sexual assault and attempted murder of a young girl. He was never involved in her life. When she was only four years old, Eileen and her brother Keith were left with their grandparents. They grew up believing that they were their mother and father. Unfortunately, the kids went from one bad situation to an even worse one. At the age of 11, Eileen began trading sexual services for things like food, alcohol, and cigarettes. I hate that entire sentence so much. I completely agree with that is you. Awful. Eileen dropped out of school in ninth grade. Her early life was full of abuse at the hands of many people, running away and sleeping outside, sometimes in the small forest that surrounded her neighborhood. We've seen her get taken advantage of terribly as a child, and in all honesty, there are a lot of ways that she was used and manipulated throughout her entire life. We'll even see that next week when we cover her time in prison leading up to her execution. But today, we are going to be covering the murders. We last spoke about the death of Richard Mallory. So at this point in her life, Eileen was actively engaging in very high-risk behavior such as sex work, armed robbery, amongst other things. She lived with her girlfriend, Taria Moore. The two would move around. They would do everything from living in motel rooms to couch surfing, never staying in one place for too long. Eileen was able to earn a fair bit of money while engaging in sex work. She spent the majority of it on living expenses, as well as gifts for Tyria. And we mentioned this last week, but Tyria was well aware of the fact that Eileen was doing the kind of work that she was. She wasn't happy about it, but she also didn't exactly mind the fact that she was with someone who just happened to constantly have a lot of cash to spend on her. Eileen had been in trouble with the law throughout her adult life, but this did not deter her from continuing in her line of work. She also engaged in armed robbery more than a few times. And here's my view on that. If you're out doing something like that all the time, even if you don't have the intention to shoot, eventually something is going to happen and you will shoot. So it was only a matter of time at this point until she killed somebody. I completely agree. She was 100% a ticking time bomb at this point. Something that folks tend to not touch on when discussing Eileen is also the fact that she was carrying a gun at this point because of the huge amount of homophobia that her and Tyria were facing as well. She stated in the Dear Dawn letters that one of the reasons they had trouble finding a place to stay was because landlords would kick them out when they found out that they were a couple. She also stated that one of the reasons she stole the gun was because people had taken some of their pets and killed them in order to hurt them. Which is absolutely fucking atrocious. Honestly, like... like... I, we talked about this before we started recording, but I read Dear Dawn in its entirety, and there's a lot of stuff in there where, like, you're reading it, you know she wasn't honest a lot of the time. Oh, a lot for sure. of yeah. the time. But some of it, you're reading it, and you're just like, I really hope this isn't true. Right? Like, yeah, it... It's awful. She did such shitty things, but she's gone through shitty things. Like, ugh. it really is no wonder she was such a hard woman. From everything that happened to her in childhood to what she was going through up until this point, 
Again, it doesn't justify the murders, but you can absolutely see why she was so angry. As we talk about the victims, we want you guys to kind of think about something. Eileen originally claimed that she killed all of these men in self-defense. We do know for a fact that she would often approach men just as a woman who needed help. Sometimes she was stranded, other times they got to talking and she talked about just needing money or things like that. The further we get and the more we talk about who these men were, the more you may find yourself thinking what actually led them to invite her into their cars. Was it sex or were they just trying to help out a woman in need? Last week we talked about the first murder that she committed. 51-year-old Richard Mallory picked up Eileen Wernos on November 30th, 1989. The things she claimed he did to her were absolutely horrific, and we've chosen to omit those details from the episode. They're online, but this is one of those times where you can trust us on this. 100%. During her confession, she did not claim that this happened. Instead, she said that she robbed him and that he was killed in the process. We want to get into this a little further than we did last week. After Eileen killed Richard Mallory, she stole his car and brought it home. She told Tyria that she robbed and killed a man. Tyria talked about this in an interview. She said, I told her I didn't want to hear about it. And? And then anytime she would come home after that and say certain things, telling me about where she got something, I'd say, I don't want to hear it. You can't just pretend it's not happening. No, not when it's basically funding your lifestyle, right? Exactly. And there wasn't a question. She knew exactly what was happening. And we have a lot to say about Tyria and her part that she played in all of this. We're going to do our best to save that for next week. Because if you don't know how how all this ends, just... Trust us. We do want to remind you that she was, again, aware of every single one of these murders. Eileen abandoned the Cadillac, and it was found a few days later after Richard's murder. His body would be found less than two weeks later. Unfortunately, all leads were cleared pretty quickly, and his case was considered a cold case. All things considered, Eileen would lay relatively low for a few months. That would change on the night that she met her second victim. David Spears was a 43-year-old construction worker who was described by those who knew him as a practical, predictable, honest, and hardworking guy. On May 19, 1990, the two would unfortunately cross paths. David was on his way to visit his wife and kids. His murder is one of the ones that really makes you think about what actually happened because David was trying to work things out with his wife at this point. The two had divorced, but they were in the process of getting back together and were even looking at getting engaged again. Would a man like this go out looking for fun on his way to see his kids and his wife who he is trying to win back? It was even the birthday of one of his children, which unfortunately also meant that he was carrying a lot more cash than he normally would have been. In the letters, Eileen claims that the two drank together all day and talked. The two eventually had sex. And when he refused to pay her, he sexually assaulted her. The letters are wild. In this particular one, she talks about how he assaulted her and then right away goes to, remember when we painted your basement bedroom black? Black. In some other reports, she stated that he picked her up late at night and that they drank in his truck. She claimed that he asked her to get into the bed of his truck with him so that they could have more room, which she did. She said at this point, he became violent with her and she shot him in self-defense. So what actually happened? It's hard to say because of how much her story changes. However, considering where David Spears was going, and also the things that were going on in his life, it is a lot less likely that he picked up a sex worker and a lot more likely that he picked up a woman who he thought might needed his help. We do know that at some point he picked her up and that the interaction would end with him dead. Something else that we do know is that Eileen, like we said before, would often pretend to be a damsel in distress on the side of the road so that men would pick her up and want to help her out. 
we're sure she met a lot of not so great people doing this, but at the end of the day, it's likely that the majority of these men who were killed by her were just trying to be good Samaritans. David's truck was found with all of the doors open and his license plate missing. The money that he had with him was also gone. Again, it's hard to say what really happened, but would a man desperate to fix his family pick up a woman on the side of the road to have sex with her? We can't 100% say that the answer is no, but is it more likely that he just wanted to help out? We're not sure. His naked body would be found on June 1st on the side of the road. He had been shot six times and left for dead. His body would be identified through the use of dental records less than a week later. And I feel bad for the families of all of these men, I think that's a given, but I feel so bad for his wife and kids. Like, they were in the process of, like, getting the family back together at the time that he was killed. And honestly, either he was a good guy who wanted to help her and she shot him, or he had slept with her and then assaulted her. Like, those are two very different things. Very, very different things. Yeah, and it's, I can only imagine how difficult it is for the family to not know what actually happened. What I will say is, again, it's all speculation because the only people that were there were Eileen and unfortunately her victim. But six gunshot wounds doesn't really track self-defense to me. Exactly. That's that's the thing actually with all her victims, but we'll get into a bit a bit more. It would be less than two weeks later until Eileen would claim her next victim. This is something that serial killers tend to do as well. She never really waited all that long between the murders that were further apart due to the fact that the killings were done in such a short amount of time. But she goes from the first and second killing being in December and May, quite a few months apart, to the second and third murder being less than two weeks apart. Serial killers do tend to have a cooling off period, especially after their first killing. But once it starts becoming a regular thing, a serial killer can sometimes go through what's considered a berserker mode period of time, where the kills go from being a few months or even years apart to sometimes being right back to back. They get into the swing of things and realize that they enjoy what they're doing, and sometimes they truly don't stop until they're stopped by somebody else. And I think Eileen would have been a great example of that if she hadn't been caught. I can't see her stopping, especially once you kind of get more into the relationship between her and Tyria and how Tyria was spending her money. Yep. She needed that income. Where was she getting the income from? Killing guys. It was a whole cycle. Very much so. Eileen would meet 40-year-old Charles Carskadon, known as Chuck, to his friends on May 31st, 1990. He was 40 years old and worked part-time at a rodeo. And this is one where the self-defense argument gets a little muddy, and you'll see why very soon. So Charles had been on the road for a little while. He was back on his way to pick up his fiancée so they could leave for him to start a new rodeo job in another state. Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, he met Eileen. Eileen claimed that she was in the back of his vehicle when she saw that he had a pistol. She claimed that she then shot him in self-defense. Now here's the thing. She found a gun in the back of his truck, and American pals, please tell us, how many people in the States in the 90s do you think carried weapons in their vehicles? We would guess probably a fair bit. Well, I mean, I grew up in the country in like the 2010s and I still knew people that had shotguns in their vehicles and stuff. So Exactly. You know, the fact that he had a gun in the vehicle did not mean that he was automatically... No, absolutely not. And he was obviously kind of um, a drifter himself, bouncing from state to state yep. for his work. And it's America. It's Florida. It's the South. They're gonna have guns. They're gonna have a gun. The other thing that makes the original self-defense claim questionable is the amount of times Charles was shot. She first shot him four times, 
Then another five. He was shot a total of nine times. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Just wanted to count that out for you. Nine times. This is something that will come up a lot when it comes to the self-defense statement, and we'll be talking about this among other details when we go over the trial, but we just wanted to give you a little insight into the sheer brutality of it. Five of the gunshot wounds were done after she knew he was already dead. Vicious. Just absolutely vicious at this point. You, I just, like, you can't shoot someone four times, stop, and then another five, and be like, for sure, he's self-defense. Yeah. One, two, tops is self-defense, yeah, exactly. right? Like, no fucking way, guys. She wrapped him up in an electrical blanket, covered him with grass, and left him in a forested area. His vehicle was found about a week later. It was tagged as abandoned and then eventually towed away. It's said that Eileen and Tyria took the car to another location to dispose of the weapon, but that wasn't before they had some fun shooting at targets with the gun. And there's Tyria again, involved, aware, unbothered. The body of Charles Karskidon was so badly decomposed when he was found that investigators were unable to identify him using his facial features or even his fingerprints. All of the bullet wounds were in areas that could have easily caused death and they were unable to determine which shot killed him. And we don't want to get too far into the time after the murders yet, but this is one where Eileen later admitted that she did kill him in cold blood. So she starts out saying, yes, self-defense, and then she admits later, no, except, I murdered that man. Except with Eileen, it starts off with self-defense, and then cold blood murder, and then back to self-defense, and then back to cold blood murder, and then just like 50 other places. And oh my god. It's, it's, it's messy. So they were unable to identify him immediately, but they knew one thing, another middle-aged man was dead, and the similarities between the two other murders could not be ignored. Peter Seams was a 65-year-old retired merchant. He spent a lot of his time doing Christian outreach and helping those in need. He would actually drive around in his Pontiac Sunbird every now and again and pick up hitchhikers or people who he thought were stranded. He would chat with them and talk to them about God. This was seriously just a dude with a car full of Bibles that wanted to genuinely help out. His wife and one of his sons were away in Europe at the time, and he was on his way to visit some relatives and then join back up with his missionary group. I watched an interview where his nephew was talking about everything, and he says that, like, the family was constantly warning him to not do this. Oh. And they were like, you can't be picking people up, it's dangerous. But he felt that that was what he should be doing. Oh my god. So... Eileen claimed that he propositioned her for sex in June of 1990 and that they were going to go out into the woods for some fun. She then said that they were getting ready to start things up when she realized that he was about to sexually assault her. She then killed him in self-defense and took his car. At the time of the murder, Eileen was incredibly intoxicated and once she left the area, she couldn't remember where she had left his body. And because of this, the body of Peter Seams has never been recovered, and he is still considered a missing person. Losing a family member in such a devastating way, like, it, it's so horrific that they were never able to truly put him to rest. Yeah. This family, to this day, has received no closure, and I sincerely hope that somehow, someday they do. And you know what? There's still work going on on the internet. There is a website where people add more information kind of as they find it out. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't been updated since 2018, 
Um, but it, it's terrible. I mean, you never know. It's not impossible. You never know. Hopefully. I hope his family does get closure I one hope day. So. But... Now, what we do know is that a few weeks later, a woman named Rhonda Klitzing was sitting on her front porch enjoying a beer when she heard a car speeding past her house. It came around the corner and lost control and hit a tree. Two women walked out of the car, and when Rhonda asked if they needed help, they said no and took off. She did report that the blonde woman had blood on her sleeves. Luckily, she got a pretty good look at both of them. She also saw the women throw beer cans into the bushes and saw one of them, the blonde one, ripping the license plate off the car with her bare hands. Damn, Eileen. Like, Jesus Christ. Like, look at a picture of her and just, like, picture her ripping off a license plate with her bare hands. I could see it. I, I for sure could see at this point, like, this woman who witnessed this, like, if that were me just, you know, having my Saturday morning coffee, looking out my living room window, and I saw Eileen rip a license plate <laughs> off a car. That's when you go back into the house, and you're like, nope, not today. I, yeah, I would come inside and be like, Cody, I think I need to call the police. <laughs> There's a woman <laughs> ripping license plates off cars. Ripping them off with her bare hand. Not unscrewing them, ripping them off. And here's what's interesting, is in the letters... Eileen claims that it was Tyria that was driving and that she was driving in a quote straight and normal and that she lost control going around the corner. Yeah, if that was the case, why do we feel the need to throw our beer cans into the bushes, ladies? Yeah, yeah ladies. Oh What's going on, ladies? God. So the police were called and the car was investigated. They found blood inside along with broken glass and the license plate had again been stolen. The car was tracked back to Peter Seams. John Wisniewski, who was working the missing persons case, sent out a nationwide alert for the missing man, along with the descriptions and sketches of the two women. At this point, it was unlikely to him that Peter would be found alive. Eileen would originally deny being involved in the murder. However, one of his Bibles was found amongst her and Tyria's things. Peter Seams was originally just considered missing. However, after all of this, it was determined that he was likely killed and that the cause of death was homicide. Again, I just, fuck, his poor family, they had warned him, like, Peter, we know you're a lovely person and that you just want to help people, yep. but you can't be doing this, and then he had the fucking unfortunate luck of running across Eileen. I mean, really, the worst thing that could have happened happened to him. Literally, and his family, like, still has to live with that. Like, yeah. fuck. Eileen's next victim was a 50-year-old sausage salesman from Ocala named Troy Barres. He was last seen on July 31st and had been reported missing almost immediately. He had left on one of his delivery routes for work, and when he hadn't arrived back, his boss became concerned. She began calling around to the stops that Troy had scheduled for the day and was incredibly alarmed to find out that he hadn't stopped at the last few. His boss and her husband drove around to look for him, but they had no luck. That's that's an incredibly kind boss. That's what I thought, too. I feel like the majority of bosses would be like, all right, get the next guy. Yeah, totally. But she obviously cared a lot about him. He was reported missing by his wife at 2 a.m. the following morning. Two hours later, Marion County deputies went out to look for him. They did not find Troy anywhere. However, they did find his abandoned car with the keys missing. His body was found five days later by a family on a picnic in the Ocala National Forest. Due to the conditions of the area and the time it took for him to be found, the body was already incredibly decomposed, which made it impossible to identify who he was at first. Again, this was the middle of summer in Florida. However, his wedding ring was still on his finger. The ring was actually how they figured out who he was. And interestingly enough, I caught this in the Dear Dawn letter. She talks about the ring really quickly. 
she says the reason why she left it was because she didn't think she could get more than $20 for it, and it didn't matter to her. Fuck you, Eileen. Heart of gold, Eileen. Oh my Heart God. of gold. Troy had been shot once in the chest and again in the back. Both shots were done with a twenty-two caliber gun. They originally suspected a male drifter that had been picked up near where the truck was found, but he was quickly cleared and the police then had no leads. And if you're wondering why they hadn't realized by now that these were all linked, we don't blame you. But we have something to blame for this that we have talked about time and time again. Unfortunately, these murders were all happening in different counties. And when murders happen in different counties, communication goes out the window a lot of the time. We're going to talk about it a lot more next week, but it's absolutely mind-blowing how many times we see this happen. And how many serial killers get to go on killing for extended periods of time because of it. And Eileen, interestingly enough, she would kill oftentimes in one county, and then because she was stealing the cars... The car would be dumped in a different county, and that made it even more complicated for them. We're going to talk about that next week, but just something to keep in mind, because if you, I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, like, what the hell? Absolutely. And not so much the case with Eileen, but a lot of these other serial killers who do go on for extended period of time because law enforcement just doesn't have their shit together, sometimes they're literally brought in and talk to law enforcement. Like, yes. the Yorkshire Ripper talked to the police multiple times yep. and was not caught until much later. Yeah, so, um, like, you, it just fucks it all Right up. under their noses. It's always crazy when that happens. Richard Humphreys was a 56-year-old retired Air Force major and former police chief. He was well-respected by those around him, and he was considered a good man who deeply loved his family. He was working as a child abuse investigator when he had the bad luck of meeting Eileen Wernos. His body was found the following day. Something to note here is that he is the first of the victims to have been shot in the head. And not only that, the shot appeared to have been done execution style. Upon further investigation, it was also found that there was evidence that he had had the barrel of a gun pressed to his stomach for so long and so hard that it had left a bruise. I think a lot of the people who express sympathy for her or even look up to her, which I think is super gross, don't actually read into the details of the killings. Because we see her getting more and more aggressive, killing more often, and now she's straight up executing these guys. She started off claiming self-defense, but this is now turned into just robbery and murder. Absolutely. And that brings us to our seventh and final victim. Walter Antonio was a 62-year-old trucker who also worked as a security guard and reserve police officer. Which makes him the second police officer that she killed. Next week, we'll talk about her views on the police and why it kind of isn't shocking that two of her victims were police officers and that they were both killed pretty brutally. It makes you wonder if these were random killings and if she decided ahead of time that she was going to kill them or if the fact that they were police was what sealed the deal, so to speak. On November 19th, 1990, his partially nude body was found in Dixie County on a remote road. He had been shot in the back and head four times. His car would be found in another county altogether almost a week later. Captain Steve Vaniger, the head of the Marion County Sheriff's Criminal Investigation Division, began to form an investigation that was based off of a theory that he had. He theorized that this was the 90s. People weren't exactly going out and picking up hitchhikers anymore. The U.S. had seen its fair share of serial killers that targeted hitchhikers, as well as hitchhikers that targeted Good Samaritans. It just wasn't something that people really did at this point. Because of this, he said that the killer, or killers, most likely appeared non-threatening enough to their victims for them to offer them help. He originally began to suspect that it could be a woman. 
However, this was solidified for him when the police sketches of the women who ran away from Peter Seam's car were examined again. He turned to the public for help, and in late November, an article was published about the murders. In it, the two women were mentioned and their sketches were shown. Police had stated that they were looking for those women and that anyone who knew absolutely anything needed to reach out immediately. And that is where we're going to leave part two of our Eileen Wernos series. Next week, we will pick things right back up with the hunt for Eileen Wernos and Tyria Moore. We're also going to talk more about the investigation, the trial, and everything that led up to the final moments of Eileen Wernos. What an incredibly bleak, bleak episode this it was. It is, yeah. I mean, it is a lot to say considering all the horrible things we do talk about. Yeah, but, it was a rough uh, one. It is rough, yeah. It, it really is interesting, though, because, like, I think a lot of the people who know the basic details about her, they go into it thinking she killed seven men in self-defense, but the more we learn about them, the more it seems like that wasn't likely. Like, I do, I think maybe she killed Mallory in self-defense. Yeah, And then I it could. just escalated yeah. from there because we certainly see her escalate with the murders themselves. I, I agree. I think Richard Mallory very well could have been self-defense just because of what we know about him now. And again, he was a sex offender. Absolutely. Um, that being said, I think the likelihood of killing seven people in self-defense is pretty low. Not to mention the fact that all of her victims were shot several times each. Shooting someone nine times is, first of all, mad overkill for self-defense. Yeah. Shooting someone in the head execution style is not self-defense. And shooting someone in the back is very unlikely to be self-defense. Thank you so much for all the love on part one. It always feels so strange to say that we hope you guys enjoyed an episode, but I hope you found this one thought-provoking, if anything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, feel free to let us know your thoughts so far, either in the YouTube comments, Twitter, or as always, feel free to email us at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com. We also want to take a second to thank all the lovely folks who've been supporting us on Patreon. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet and you'd like to support our podcast, then please go to patreon.com slash the Grim Curriculum and check us out. You can join for as little as $3 a month Canadian and we have super fun perks including story time episodes, stickers, and more. And with that being said, we'd like to take a second to thank everyone in our Grim VIP Patreon tier. You guys are amazing. Seriously, thank you so, so, so much. We have a small community on there, but we love having a place to chat with all of you and it's been so much fun making the Patreon content. So a huge, huge thank you to Lisa, Brian, Hillary, Pink Flamingo 20, and RSG. We are actually recording ourselves, recording this episode today for a behind-the-scenes Patreon episode, so that'll be interesting. It's a time-lapse. It is, so uh, enjoy. I'm yeah. sure there's going to be some fun fucking faces in there. <laughs> All of the money that we do make from Patreon goes straight back into the podcast. We're putting it towards merch. We're looking to get that set up as well as just making the podcast better and more refined. So those of you who are supporting, thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We are also still raising money for Extra Life. Yay! We're raising money for our local children's hospital here in Edmonton, the Stollery. So we've done a couple of uh, streams together so far, and I've done a couple of streams by myself. Um, the links and everything will be down in the description below, uh, but you can search us on extralife.org. Uh, our team is called The Stream Daddies. Woo. Bunch of dedicated 
fun people that are just looking to uh, help some sick kids. Bunch of cool cats. Yeah, and of course, uh, when you donate, it just automatically makes you a hotter person. It does. It's science. Absolutely. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at the Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. We are posting some little teaser reels on Instagram with little like uh, episode previews, so feel free to check those out too. You can also find us on social media. I'm Dina V Tweets on Twitter and Dina V IG on Instagram and also uh, Dina V on Twitch where I have the Extra Life link up until uh, the event is over on November 1st. So if you guys want to donate, that's another way you can do it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitter, Ominous Walrus on Instagram, and Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitch. It's hard saying underscore walrus so many times. Um, I also have extra life info there, so if you want to go check that out and follow me, that would be lovely too. We also thought we'd take a step into 2022, and we started a TikTok as well. So if you want to go head over and check that out, we'll just be posting some, well, mostly our little teasers, but also maybe some other fun stuff too. Right? I mean, TikTok is cool. I don't know how to TikTok, so it's going to be interesting, but it'll be fun. I consume TikTok. Perfect. But I do not make TikTok, so we're, we're going to figure it out. Yeah, so. we're uh, gr- the Grim Curriculum on there as well, so go follow us. It'll be cool. Yeah. As always, thank you so much for listening, guys. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. And hey, guys, listen, after listening to this one, I highly recommend go listen to some Mothman. <laughs> <laughs>